So I'm, you know, on my real estate investments, I, I can be making money three different ways. I got my cash on cash return. I've got my um, appreciation of the property and I've got um, the equity pay down from my, from my tenant basically paying my mortgage. So th those things combined make real estate a far more effective vehicle for building wealth. Welcome to Real Estate Deal Closers with Annette Talee, where we focus on the deals. Our guests are real estate closers who will share in detail the whole process from finding a deal to closing it, as well as strategies and tips to help you do the same. Here's your host, Annette Talee. Welcome to another episode of Real Estate Deal Closers. I am your host, Annette Talee, and my guest today is Ted Lanzaro. Welcome, Ted. Thank you. Thank you, Annette. Thank you for having me here today. That's great. Super excited to have you on the show. Uh, but before we start, I want to tell you a little bit about Ted. He is a certified public accountant, real estate investor, real estate broker, author, and speaker with over 29 years of real estate tax consulting and investing experience. He runs Lanzaro CPA LLC, a boutique CPA firm specializing in accounting and taxation for real estate industry. For the past 29 years, he has helped thousands of real estate business owners, entrepreneurs, and investors all over the United States implement cutting-edge tax strategies that save them thousands of dollars annually on taxes. Um, so, Ted, tell me, how did you get into real estate? Yeah, no, you know what, it's, uh, and thank you for that. And then, you know what, it's funny because it, I just, it's 30 years now because I just finished my 30th tax season. Oh, wow. Uh, Congrats. Earlier this week. Yeah, right. You know, so um, I got into real estate back, it was actually in South Florida. And I used to live in uh, the Boca Raton, Delray Beach area. And I was working for um, a local regional CPA firm in, in Boca Raton. And um, a friend of mine, I went to high school down there, and a friend of mine from high school approached me and he's like, you got to read this book. He said, I said, well, what book is it? He's Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So he gave me a copy of the book. And I had been working, I worked in the real estate department of this CPA firm. So I dealt with, you know, developers and, and brokers and, and investors already, but I was just, I was doing their taxes essentially. Um, and I'd never actually been an investor myself. And I said, well, you know, I said, my, uh, my clients are making a ton of money. I said, I think you're right. Let me read this book, right? So I read the book and I told my friend, okay, let's go out and um, let's go out and check some things out and see what we can see, what kind of deals we can find. And the first day we went out, uh, we went out looking for houses in, uh, in uh, Fort Lauderdale. We went and bought, we bought, actually that day we put offers on three houses and bought uh, three single family houses down in the uh, South Florida and right off of Oakland Park Boulevard. Wow. And at, at the time, these, these were like little three bedroom, two bed, you know, three, two, three bedroom, two bath houses. You could buy them like about $85,000. They rented out about 12, 1300 a month or whatever. And as a result of that, I started a portfolio and I started going to real estate investment club meetings you know, locally in, in and around the area. And some people found out that I was a CPA and that I was, um, you know, building a real estate portfolio. And I said, well, you know, uh, you must know all the tax tricks. And I said, well, you know, I'm using a lot of them for myself and a lot of them for my clients. You know, would you do a presentation for our group? 
and I had never done a presentation before. I wasn't sure how. And so the first time I ever did it, I just, you know, threw together a PowerPoint and literally sat there and read off the slides in front of a group of group of investors at a, at a meeting up in uh, Port St. Lucie, Florida. And, um, you know, I, my knees were, you know, shaking and, you know, I was nervous, but somehow I got through it. And at the end, everybody clapped and, you know, wanted to talk to me and I ended up with a few new clients. And, uh, and I've been doing that ever since. I, I kind of combined as well, there must, be, there must be something here. So I com combined my investment experience and, uh, and my tax knowledge. And pretty soon I was, you know, I was talking all over the place about, you know, what I was doing and, and building a portfolio. We ended up um, buying a number of like garden apartment complexes down there and some more single family houses. And, uh, and then we started uh, uh, buying and flipping houses, right? So I learned that process. And, and so that was kind of interesting because I had no idea how to do it. And, you know, the worker guys used to send me to Home Depot. You know, right? So <laughs> they would, uh, they were like, oh, Ted, we need more, we need more paint, go get it for us. You know, and I'd leave work, you know, and go, and go get them paint and bring it to them. And whatever. So, but just to show you how inexperienced I was at the time, right? You know, so I would never do any of that now, but that's, that's literally how, how I got started. And I ended up um, building my, uh, we ended up taking in another partner and we built a pretty nice, uh, pretty nice real estate portfolio that and that was about 2002, 2003. I ended up selling that portfolio to my partners in 2006 when I moved up here to Connecticut. And then when I got up here, I started rebuilding a, a new Connecticut um, portfolio. So it was, it's, it's been a blast, you know, and now, now I really don't actively um, manage anything. I'm just too busy. So uh, I do a lot of uh, passive, a lot of passive investments. Wow. And, and, you know, that book, uh, that book has changed so many lives. I think that was also one of the first books that I read, uh, you know, about real estate, that an introduction to passive income and to actively investing and to not be an employee and, you know, be a business owner instead. And, you know, the quadrant. So it's such an amazing book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, if you haven't read it yet, you gotta get it. And, you know, it's not really a book that really teaches you about investing in like techniques or how to do it. It's just like a mindset book that really makes you think about the way that you are uh, behaving and you know where you're going to be if you don't change that. So it's really, really cool book. Real Estate Deal Closers Special Edition. All right. So, you know, I, I think your, your experience is a, an excellent uh, segue to talk about the advantages of investing in real estate, you know, and comparing them versus other uh, investing strategies, because I think real estate has a lot of um, advantages that I don't think um, investors realize if they are just investing investing um, in stocks or, or, or other vehicles, they are not realizing all the advantages of real estate. So, um, Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so look, I, I'm really, uh, you know, kind of a stone cold real estate investor, and I and I and I do it, be, you know, for a number of different reasons. The first, I think, the, the first biggest one is, you know, um, depreciation and and the concept of tax free cash flow. So the whole reason somebody would want to invest in real estate, right, buy a rental property, is because um, 
after you collect all the rents and pay all the bills, you have hopefully have money left over, right? If you've done this right, you have money left over, right? And, um, but um, that money can, uh, that income can be offset by the depreciation on the house uh, or the property. And the depreciation on the property is basically, depreciation is basically an allocation of the purchase price of the property over a period of years that the IRS basically dictates. So for residential property, the, a typical residential property is depreciated over 27 and a half years and a commercial property like an office building or storage unit or shopping center is 39 years. What that means is, and, and this, is, this is a very basic explanation, is that if I go out and buy a $275,000 house um, and I depreciated over 27 and a half years, I get a $10,000 a year, 275 divided by 27.5, $10,000 a year depreciation deduction. So I could have $10,000 of cash flow from the property minus the $10,000 depreciation deduction. I have zero net taxable income, but I still have $10,000 in the bank, right? So that's the whole idea, whether you're investing actively like I was or investing passively like what I do now, you get the money, but it's not subject to tax because you've offset it with the depreciation. So that's that's probably the primary reason you want to invest in real estate, okay? The other reason, the thing that I love about investing in real estate also is, which is so unlike the stock market, is you can use leverage, right? So if I have $10,000 to invest and I go into the stock market, I can buy $10,000 worth of stock, pretty much, right? And so nobody's going to let me buy $100,000 worth of stock and loan me the other $90,000, right? So if I have $10,000, I can buy $10,000 worth of stock. A lot of investors, if you want to buy real estate, a $10,000 down payment might get you a $100,000 house, right? That you can invest. Um, and let's say you get $1,000 a month in rent, just as an example, right? Well, now once the once you pay the mortgage or whatever, let's say you've got um, $200 a month left over. Now you've got $2,400 a year or $2,400 a year uh, left over at the end of the year. I put in 10,000. So now my cash on cash return is 24%. Um, you know, 2,400 divided by the $10,000. Why? Because I'm using leverage, right? And I'm also, that's just the cash on cash return. I'm also, my tenant is paying down the mortgage, so I'm building equity every year, right? And, and the market could be appreciating. So like we're in a, right now, we've been in a rapidly appreciating market for, for quite a number of years. So I'm, you know, on my real estate investments, I, I can be making money three different ways. I got my cash on cash return, I've got my um, appreciation of the property and I've got um, the equity pay down from my, from my tenant basically paying my mortgage. So th those things combined make real estate a far more effective vehicle for building wealth than investing, you know, just taking your $10,000 and putting it in the stock market with the idea that you're going to typically earn about you know, if you're lucky and the market stays pretty good, you're typically going to make seven or eight percent on an annual basis over a long period of time, averaged out. You know, you can have good years and bad years, but averaged out. So, which means, you know, it takes you a long time to build wealth 
in the in the stock market versus you know um, being able to do it with rental properties. Yeah, that's awesome. And even if you know your property doesn't appreciate, you and but if you work the numbers properly, you're still gonna be making cash flow. So you know it, it it's not like in on the market where it just goes up and down and you have no control of it. Um, on real estate, if you bought it with the right numbers, you're still going to cash flow, even if the pro- value of the property goes down, um, you still can be making money with the cash flow. No, that's true. Yeah, exactly. And that, and that, and look, and, and I never would tell anybody to buy a property with the idea that it's going to gain in value. You always want to buy based on the cash flow, right? So you want to make sure that when it's done, um, you know, you've got money left over. You know, because the, so, and this is, this is a real story. Uh, you know, I was telling you about those houses that we started with in Fort Lauderdale, right? Um, so um, in, you know, you're familiar in Florida, you have a homestead law, right? Okay. Yes. And your real estate taxes um, can, can only go up a certain amount if it's your primary residence. But if, if it's not your primary residence, then when the towns reassess, the taxes, your taxes can go up pretty dramatically. So those $80,000 houses that we bought in 2002, uh, by, 2000, by 2006 were $200,000 houses, okay? And the city of Fort Lauderdale came in and reassessed them. And our real estate taxes tripled, okay? Wow. And, and all of a sudden we didn't have any cash flow anymore we had we had negative cash flow, right? So they, they used to call that getting eaten by alligators. Right? I don't know if you're familiar with that expression, <laughs> but but it basically means you know the alligators taking a bite out of your out of your bank account every month instead of money going in. So fortunately, what ended up happening was that at about the same time, um, mortgages were so easy to get back then, right? So um, we ended up as the tenants left, we ended up selling them. So we did really well because, you know, we, we had big capital gains on each one we sold and we eventually got out of that single family house situation where we had basically negative cash flow on about uh, 12 houses, <laughs> which was, and that's the other thing because we had bought them all in the same neighborhood because it was easy to manage. Right. But when they, when they went up, they right. all went up. So there's, you know, there's, right. there's some lessons to be learned there, you know, right? Yeah, I, I also had one of my properties, the same happened, like, I was um, calculating the, I knew that the taxes would go up, but I just based my calculation on how much it would go up based on other properties that I own around, mm-hmm. but this property just went up super high. So I now, I thank God in the area that I invest, the, the property appraiser has an estimator. And so I use the worst case scenario because I don't want to be in that position because it didn't go negative on my property, but it was just breaking even and it wasn't making any money until I was able to refinance. And uh, now it's making money again. But uh, yeah, if you don't do the numbers properly, then you can either break even or start losing money. So uh, super important. Um, All right. So, you know, we have depreciation, we have leverage and appreciation in real estate, um, but how does this, how is this different uh, or for active versus passive investors? Right, so now, now we're talking about actual 
uh, tax consequences and the ability to deduct rental losses. Because typically in the example that I used before, we we're talking about, oh, I have some cash flow, but my depreciation is offsetting it. Now it's zero. That's typically not what happens. Typically, in the, at least in the first five years of ownership of the property, you're actually going to, your depreciation is actually going to create net losses on the property. And there's some depreciation tricks, like you know, making sure that you segregate out certain assets within the building to get better depreciation methodology on them. But you're typically going to end up with net losses um, on your rental properties in the first five to seven years, give or take, right? So now... Can I, so now, can I take those net losses against my earned income and reduce my taxes? So what the IRS says is if I'm an active investor, okay, um, an active investor means I'm basically, they're my properties, I'm managing them, I'm putting in um, 500 hours uh, a year in, uh, in oversight of my properties, um, and I make less than $150,000 a year of earned income, I'm eligible to take up to $25,000 a year of rental losses against my ordinary income. If I make under $100,000 a year, I can take the whole 25,000. So let's say I make $100,000 a year and I've got $25,000 in rental losses for my rental property. Well, now they only have to pay tax on $75,000, right? So in a 20% bracket, that's a $5,000 tax savings, right? That wow. means I pay five, literally 5,000 tax. Now you guys are fortunate in Florida that you don't have state income tax. Here in Connecticut, we've got a 5% state income tax. So it's, it's not 20%, it's 25%, right? So in that, in that scenario, that $25,000 loss is actually worth 6,000 and change, even more because, we, you know, because it's got more, more tax benefit. Right. So, so that's really, that's really one of the primary benefits is I'm able to take, now, as my income approaches $150,000 a year, my earned income, I lose $500 of that ability to take rental losses for every $1,000 I earn. So if I make $101,000 a year, I can only deduct $24,500 of rental losses off that, right? But, and once I get to 150, my $25,000 of available rental losses has disappeared. It doesn't, it doesn't, you still carry it over and you can take it in the following years. You just don't get the deduction in the current year. But here's a neat trick. Think about this, right? So I, I make, make $150,000 a year. So I can't deduct any of my $25,000 of rental losses as an active investor. So, and people do the, people call me about this all the time. I say, well, are you making your 401k contribution? And they say, no, I'm like, well, do it. Use the cash flow from the rental property to make your 401k contribution. So let's say you make $150,000 a year, you haven't funded your 401k, so you put $20,000 away in your 401k. And I'm using round numbers. It's actually, I think this year was 19.5. But let's use, let's use 20 just for example. So now my net income is $130,000. Now I can take $10,000 of rental losses also. So I actually got a double hit on my taxes. I'm saving money by deferring part of my salary. And by deferring part of my salary, I'm also eligible to take an, a rental loss. So that putting that $20,000 away actually saves me $30,000. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Absolutely. Wow. Right? Wow, wow, exactly. So, and then if now let's say I don't work for a company that I can put that I work for myself, self, I'm self-employed. And if I make $150,000 of self-employment earnings, right? Well, I can do an even bigger contribution. Maybe I can put away 20% of that or more. Let's say I put away $30,000. Uh, uh, I use a set to put away $30,000 in retirement. Now, I get that $30,000 and $15,000 of eligible rental losses. So that $30,000 retirement plan contribution saved me $45,000 in taxes. So, you know, being free, and that's where tax planning comes in, right? Because that's where uh, calling your accountant and saying, how do I get, how do I deduct my taxes? Not, you know, a lot of accountants will say, well, you make $150,000 a year, you can't deduct any of your rental losses nonsense. How can I deduct my rental losses, right? That's one of the ways by reducing, by getting my, using the deferrals to reduce your income so that you're eligible to take more rental losses, right? Now, if I'm a passive investor, meaning I've invested in somebody else's deal or my income's way over $150,000 a year, so I'm never getting down below it anyway, right? Mm -hmm. So effectively, but if I actively manage my properties, if I'm making half a million dollars a year, I'm basically a passive investor, right? So as a passive investor, the IRS says you cannot deduct rental losses against your ordinary income, right? What happens is those rental losses carry over until one of a few things happens. The first thing is I have net rental income somewhere, right? So I may, I may not be able to deduct losses for five years. And then all of a sudden my property starts having net rental income well, I'm going to use all those past carryovers to offset my net rental income until those losses are gone. So even a, a passive investor may not end up paying, um, may not pay, end up paying taxes on his cash flow for 10 or 12 years because they're going to use the carryover. They're going to get to zero every year, net, okay. net loss, net income or loss. And they're still going to have some X left over. And that leftover is going to cover their taxes in year six, seven, eight, nine, 10 you know, until it's used up, right? The other way that you can use passive losses is when you sell the property. So the IRS says, when you sell the property, any carryovers you have can be immediately taken. And most of the time what ends up happening is they, they help offset the gain on the sale of the property. So it's a really good, it's a really good strategy, right? So for passive investors, there's nothing, and here's the other thing about passive investors, right? Passive investors will say to me, well, you know, um, I, uh, you know, I can't deduct the depreciation, so I don't want to invest passively, but that, but they're missing, they're missing the point when the point is that you're getting tax-free cash flow, right? So if I'm a passive investor and I make $200,000 a year and I'm paying 20% taxes, I'm paying $40,000 in taxes, right? On my $200,000. Right. Well, if I use that money to go out and build a passive portfolio and that passive portfolio after a couple of years of investing, maybe I have an additional um, $50,000 of cash flow coming in that I'm not paying taxes on, right? So now my real cash income is $250,000, 200 that I'm earning for my job or my business plus 50 I'm earning passively. I'm still paying $40,000 in taxes. So my marginal rate 
is not 20% anymore. Zach's probably like 15% or 16%, mm. right? So by building a stream of passive income, I'm putting more money in my bank account, but I'm not paying any more in taxes. And the more money you make and the more money you invest as a passive investor, the more tax-free cash flow you can build, the better off you are. So I have clients that make a million dollars a year. They can't deduct any passive losses, but they but they have a ton of money to put away in, in passive investments. So I have this one guy, he you know, uh, put away enough money that he generates literally about a half a million dollars more a year in, in passive income that he doesn't pay any taxes on. That cuts his marginal tax rate by a third. So okay, so let me see if I understand this. Um, so if you are like, if you invest passively, you're going to generate passive income, right? So now, um, but you cannot use your depreciation, you said, correct? Well, yes, you're going to, you're going to get passive cash flow, and you can only use the depreciation to the point where it gets you to zero. Mm -hmm. You can't take a loss. So if I've got $100,000 of passive income, I'm probably paying zero taxes on that. Oh, wow. Right? Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, but I still have the money in the bank, right? So if I make, so take that, extrapolate that out. If I make a million dollars a year at my business, okay? Mm -hmm. And then I have another five, and I pay, and then let's say I say, pay $400,000 in taxes on that million dollars. I'm in the 40% bracket. Okay. Well, now, if I add half a million dollars of passive cash flow that I'm not paying taxes on, I'm, I now have a million five running into my bank account every year, but I'm still only paying $400,000 in taxes because I'm not paying taxes on that $500,000. So what has happened? My effective rate is going down. If right. I'm, I'm not in the 40% bracket anymore. I'm in the 28 or 29% bracket. I mean, it's an extreme example, but I have somebody who, who's done that. Wow. You know, they had to put away $5 million in order to do it, but they did it. Right. right. So, so it definitely pays to diversify and do some active and some passive. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. And, and then, so let, now let's, let's go to the third alternative, which is real estate professional, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say this guy who's got a million dollars, uh, you know, a million dollar year salary, right? Let's say he has a spouse who's interested in real estate, right? And that spouse um, says, okay, well, you know what? Let's go buy some active properties. I'm going to manage them. And by managing them, I'm going to get my 750 hours that is mandated by the IRS as the qualifier for real estate. And since I don't do anything else, I meet the other criteria, which is it has to be at least 50% of everything I do. So there's two criteria, 750 minimum hours in, in real estate related activities, running a real estate related business, which property management counts, mm -hmm. right? And it has to be more than half of what I do. So yes, it is. It's more than half what I do um, because it's all I do. So it's hundred percent of what I do. So now I qualify. Now I can take losses against my spouse's million dollars worth of income. So let's say I have that same $500,000 of cash flow, but my K-1s actually show a $300,000 loss, which is entirely possible, by the way. Well, now being a real estate professional, I can offset that 300 against my spouse's million dollar salary and only pay tax on 700,000. Wow. 
So that, that's, the, that's the beauty of real estate professional status. It has to be done right and it has to be planned out correctly, okay? And you need to be running a business that you make money at, okay? At least my, I, I, that's not an IRS criteria, but that's a criteria for me to make sure I'm, I'm protecting my clients. I want you to be running a business that you're actually making some money at, right? So that if the IRS calls you into their office, you know, you can say, well, look, I'm a property manager. This is how much money I made as a property manager, or I'm a real estate broker, or I'm a developer, right? I have guys that are, I have uh, clients that are flippers, you know, they're developers essentially, uh, and they own rental properties. They're real estate professionals. They qualify. Yeah. So mm. that's a really, that's a really, that's the, the holy grail of real estate investing is being a professional because it basically allows you to take un, um, unlimited rental losses against your ordinary income on an annual basis. Wow. Unlimited. So you gotta, to be a real estate professional, you gotta, uh, do 750 hours of real estate activities and it has to be at least 50% of whatever what you do so if you have a full-time job you're not going to qualify because it's not 50% mm -hmm. unless I mean I don't know how many hours like unless you work uh, for 1500 hours uh, you know a year yeah you could think about this the average the average 40 hour a week person works 2000 80 hours a year, right? So you'd have to have 2,081 real estate hours. That would be insane. You wouldn't have a life. Yeah, exactly. Right? You, would be, now, you will have two full times. Right. Are there people who do it? Yeah. Or are there people who claim to do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yes, there are, right? Those people have bullseyes on their back. Those are the people that the IRS call into their office and say, let me see your real estate law, right? right. I want to see... So your record keeping of how you managed to do this, right? Because it is, it's unusual to say the least. So what I, yeah, what I advise people to do is if you're going to try to do that, right? Man, your, your tracking better be bulletproof. Because right. you, you're, you're getting called in. Right. Yeah, more than likely over, over some period of time, you're, you're going to end up in the IRS's office with your last Right. So I, I, I was, um, I'm going to be claiming real estate professional uh, for my tax years uh, last year. And, um, but the good thing is I work part time. So I don't work full time. And, but my accountant was worried about it. And I was like, don't worry, I'm tracking everything. I, you know, this is the way I do it. And I don't know if it's the best way, but I just put everything on my calendar on my phone calendar and I just tag it as real estate, everything that is real estate. And I just, as, you know, have an hour, an hour meetings, everything. And then I download all those, the, all those uh, transactions into a Google sheet. And then I have, you know, it adds up all the hours. Um, so, so far it's been working really good uh, to track the hours. What, what are no, the other ways? Well, I was just going to say the more detailed you can be, right? Like, if I, if I go out and look at a property, if I'm tracking my hours and I go out and look at a property, I'm taking pictures of the property, I'm throwing out a, a sheet about the property. Uh, if I met with a broker I'm, you know, or an agent, I'm taking their card, I might even take a picture, you know, right? The more detailed, if you go out to lunch with them, your investors or something, hey, I had lunch with Annette today. We went to, you know, whatever restaurant at whatever location and I'm going to clip, maybe I'm going to clip my, uh, the receipt to you know my tracking sheet for that day and and i'm gonna you know write a little note about what we talked about right 
all the more detailed you can be, the better off you're you're going to be if you ever get questions, you know. And it's it's kind of interesting from from this standpoint, which is, um, it's if you do it right, you are you are going to get such a big tax, probably going to get such a big tax deduction that it's worth it's worth doing the extra record keeping, which can be a pain. You know, and a lot of people don't want to do it, but you know, it is, it's actually, you know, there's there's responsibility that comes with every opportunity. And that's that's what's really about. So so what what type of activities qualify and what type of activities don't qualify for these 750 hours? So if I'm operating my business, right, any of the operations of my business qualify, right? So um if I'm a if I'm a real estate agent, for example, right, it's all my research, all my showings. Um, if but if I go to a CE class, I'm not. I can't count that. Right? Education doesn't count. Right? Oh, education doesn't. So count. a lot of people, a lot, a lot of people say, oh well, I went to an event. I spent uh, you know blankety blank. I spent the entire weekend at you know Joe Schmo Guru's event, right? Well, you know what? That doesn't count, right? But you know what does count? The networking. The time, spent, the time you, yeah, the time you spent in the hallway is networking, right? If you're documenting it, right? You can say, look, uh, between the hours of twelve and one, while I was when we were on break for that weekend, I talked to the following five people, and I've got their cards, and I've got the note on the back of their card, what I, you know, what I talked about because what is that that's marketing i'm marketing my business right mm -hmm. I'm, I'm meeting connections to buy properties and doing all of those things so all of the ordinary activities of running your business all those um real estate you know like if you're an agent all the things that you do as an agent and what i typically do when i tell people teach people about this to put together a spreadsheet like if you're putting together your google sheet right let's say you're doing it as a as a landlord right you're using your landlord method well, there's probably 10 or 15 things as a landlord you do every week. Constantly, yes. Right? yes. Constantly, right? So you just you list those out, you know, automatically. And then you just pop the hours in, right? Because you know you're gonna be you're gonna you know you're gonna be chasing rents, you know, or right. Or, every uh, first of the fall. month you're gonna be, you know, collecting rents and every you know 15 days you're gonna you know, do some maintenance or whatever. I, I did that. I actually auto-populated the stuff that I know for sure that I do every month or every week at, in some of the activities and I just put it there. And then if it changes, then I just move it. But I know that it's there if, if it's um it's every week, you know? So that's awesome. Right. So, so, you know, what about, for example, for people that do capital raising? Um, would all the... Um, networking events like meetups, like attending these places or having lunch with investors and would these activities qualify? Yeah, I, I, I would I would say they do because I'm running a real estate business. I'm, I'm, I'm in the business of real estate um, capital capital raising and um, I'm running a real estate related business where we're acquiring properties, right? Now, what I would tell people is for me, I'd like to see you like when you when you take that real estate professional status. I'd like to see you have an acquisition fee, and I don't care if it's five thousand bucks or five million bucks, 
I think, I think you should have made some money. So if somebody comes to me and says, you know, um, and I have a lot of people who do this, they say, oh, you know, we spent the whole year, you know, basically they spent the whole year attending events and meeting people, right? And building sort of a database of potential investors, right? But they didn't buy a property and they didn't. Now that's a little bit tougher sell, right? I would, if I, if I was going to take real estate professional status, I probably still would, right? Depending on the situation, but I would be warning them that this is not as good as if I had done the exact same thing, done a deal and taken an acquisition. Because that, that extra piece legitimizes the activity. Right. Yeah. But that, that would be a little bit more if you're doing um, syndications, right? Like what about if you're doing joint ventures, the fact that you're just buying property, would that be suffice? Like if you are buying yeah, property? Yeah. I bought a, look, I bought a property. I'm making rental income. Right. Right. Even if I not, even if I don't have any net at the bottom, I still have dollars. I'm still producing dollars coming in. Right. right. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. Instead of, instead of, uh, an acquisition fee, I've, I've made rental income. I just want to make money. I just want to be able to show that I, I did something that generated, that you know, generated someone to pay me, right? right. That makes sense? It would be rental Absolutely. income, brokerage income, whatever it is. Right. And, and for example, people that have uh, podcasts like me, or, you know, you, I know you have a YouTube channel. When you produce this content, um, would that be considered part of uh, your hours or that is not? Yeah. I mean, look, I'm marketing my business. Mm -hmm. That's part of the marketing of the business. So yeah, I consider that. I would consider that, um, you know, part of the marketing of the business, but that's part of the ordinary activity of my business, you know, even as a CPA and I don't have to track my hours as a CPA, but I probably spend I don't know, five or six hours a week producing you know the, the content that i put out right mm -hmm. and and do the other activities some weeks there's no content but there's you know uh but there's me on facebook talking with people or answering questions or whatever all of that is marketing and i can make direct connections from those activities directly to client acquisition right so you want to be able as an investor to make those exact same connections with your with your videos. Hey, Joe Schmo, Joe Schmo investor saw my video. He called me. We had lunch, right? So think about think about when you're when you're um, like uh, attracting investors, even for your joint for, even for your joint investors mm -hmm. venture. You know, it all starts with some activity. And then there's a, there's a period where you're getting to know the person, you're showing them what you're doing, you're going to lunch, you know, uh, maybe you send them emails, all that. If, you, if you're doing this right, you have a, some sort of database management system where you're putting and logging all of that stuff in, even as a CPA, I have that for my business. Right. So I can tell you, you know, hey, this is how we met, this is who referred you, or this is what video you called me on, or, or this is the question that I answered. Right. And I can literally track, like, and I'll just give you an example. If you, and as an investor, you want to be able to do this also. I, I can track one answer on Facebook. Somebody asked a question, I answered it. It led to a speaking engagement, mm -hmm. okay, which led to about 10 clients, which led to about 
15 more speaking engagements, which probably um, turned into about 30 or 40 clients, right? And, 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 and I can track that all the way through my system, right? Because, because, that's, because that part of my business, um, that, that is, that's part of my business, the client acquisition or investor acquisition or deal acquisition, it's all part, it's all part of the act. That's what you're doing. That's, that's the business. Absolutely. That's awesome. So, you know, so we, the, the, the best one is when you are a real estate professional, but otherwise, if you don't get to those 750 hours, you can do the 500 hours and, and be just an act, an active investor. Correct. And get the, you the can. yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Um, and, um, and, but unless you're, unless your income disqualifies you, you know, then that's, that's the next best, that's the next best choice, you know, but I don't want to, you know, look, I tell, I tell people all the time, you know, uh, it does cash tax free cash flow is still good, right? If you can get the tax benefits, great, but don't let that, don't let the fact that you're not going to get a massive tax benefit stop you from investing because you can, you can still build massive wealth as an investor, just via the tax return. Right. And, and we haven't even talked about, well, we, you briefly mentioned cost segregation, which is kind of like a, an extra benefit that, that you can depreciate more at the beginning. So can you tell us a little bit about more about what's uh, cost segregation and, and how it helps investors? Right. So cost segregation, um, a cost segregation study is a study that basically breaks down the component pieces of a property into um, into different um, classes, which the IRS says can be depreciated differently, right? So the, we mentioned earlier that a residential apartment building, for example, is depreciated over 27 and a half years. But every residential apartment has assets in it, which can be depreciated over five years, okay? And those assets are called tangible personal property, okay? That's an IRS um, term, right? And tangible personal property is anything that I can, you know, the layman's version of this is anything I can unplug, unscrew, somehow detach and walk out with, right? So think about an apartment, right? What are those things? The appliances, right? So the stove, the refrigerator, uh, the sink, the cabinets, um, in a bathroom, the toilet, the vanity, the mirrors, shelving, all of these lighting, decorative lighting, all of these things that can be removed are considered five-year property, right? Mm -hmm. Then I go outside and there's another category called land improvements. And their land improvements can be depreciated over 15 years, right? So a land improvement would be fencing, retaining walls, the sidewalks, not the sidewalk in front of the building, but the sidewalks leading up from the parking lot to the various units. The parking lot is probably the biggest land improvement you're going to find in an apartment building. Right. So what happens is if I do a cross segregation study and let's let's use a million dollar building, just as an example, mm -hmm. um, the national average of five and 15 year property in a million dollar building is about 20 percent, give or take. Right. Okay. I've seen them going I've seen them come out as high as 40. But on average, let's call it 20 percent. So I'm going to have $200,000 of five and 15 year property in an average million dollar apartment building. 
So now I'm going to be able, I'm not going to depreciate those assets over 27 and a half years. I'm going to depreciate them over five years or 15 years, the way the IRS says I can. What else the IRS says is right now in 2021, all five and 15 year assets are subject to bonus depreciation. And bonus depreciation means I can take the entire value of those five and 15 year assets and depreciate them all at once in year one. Wow. Right? So I can get a massive tax benefit. So let's say I'm a, I'm, so if I'm a real estate professional, I get the most benefit of it. So I have a client who is a real estate broker and he made about $600,000 um, last year, uh, 2019 actually. So, and that year he went and he bought an apartment building million dollar apartment building and he got like two hundred thousand dollars worth of depreciation on that building right from doing a cost information study and since he's a real estate professional he was able to apply all of that depreciation against his income so he made six hundred thousand dollars as a broker and then deducted two hundred thousand dollars of depreciation from the apartment building he bought and paid taxes on four hundred thousand dollars i mean that it's right a big there chunk is a, yeah, it's a $60,000, tax, net tax hit, you know, wow. that he didn't have to pay, tax savings. So about a $70,000 tax hit. Amazing. And if he got that same amount and invested in some different asset, they would have been paying taxes on the full amount and not get this uh, reduction on, on, on the income. That's awesome. If I had taken the same million dollars and put it into, a, into stock, I would have no depreciation. Right, exactly. Excellent. And I would get no time. Yeah. Yeah. So are there any other strategies uh, besides the ones that we talked uh, or other secrets that you want to share with us that we should consider when, when considering investing in real estate? Yeah, I mean, look, there's, <laughs> there's a, I, I wrote a whole book of them, right? I've got 39 of them in a, in a, in a book uh, called The Tax Smart Landlord, which is uh, available uh, on my website at uh, www.lanzarocpa.com. Um, and, and the important part to, to remember about these is that they are, they don't apply to everyone and they can be used in, uh, in conjunction with one another or standalone. Um, and, but they also have to be strategically reviewed to, and, and tailored to your situation. And that's what I tell, I tell people. Um, there's no one size. It's not like, uh, like when you go to buy a suit, you know, uh, there's no one size fits all. It needs to be tailored to your specific situation. And that's literally what I do all day. Right. And, and, and you're so, you're so correct because sometimes the same strategy, uh, doesn't work for you the same way that it would work for somebody else and or there are two different options and it really it's up to you which option you want to go with um so you really gotta go to your accountant and and your lawyer right because you, they gotta work together because sometimes the accountant tells you something and then the the lawyer tells you something else and you're like okay which one is it so you really need to work with them together uh, on the strategy right and think about this just as an example uh, the same million dollar building, somebody who doesn't qualify as a real estate professional goes out and does a cost segregation study because they saw on Facebook that it's a good idea to do, right? And they never consult their account or whatever. And they go out and they literally spend five, somewhere between five and $10,000 to get a cost segregation study done. And then they bring it to their account and their account and looks at them like, are you out of your mind? You're, you're, you don't qualify to take this deduction. 
right? Right. So now, right, they, they implemented a strategy. They did it perfectly. They did a perfect implementation of the strategy, except they don't qualify to take the deduction. Right. So, you know, so there's a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff like that that has to be. So whenever somebody asks me, there's all, like when somebody says, would a cost segregation study help me? I ask them about 20 questions before I say yes or no. Right. right. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So if you guys, you know, need to, uh, to, to analyze this, you need to contact Ted and, you know, talk to him, but he's going to need to know more. So you're going to have to call him and, and discuss your, your situation so that he can give you the, the best advice possible. Productivity hack. Um, so let's move on to uh, one segment that I love. Uh, and this is a quick question. And this is, uh, you know, your productivity hack. And this is about your business. What have you done in your business that has taken you to the next level in terms of productivity? Um, and it could be something that like a program that you implemented or simply, simply a habit. I would love to know uh, that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sort of into that, so I probably have more than one. But I, you know, the biggest one, um, I literally, when I sit down to work, I um, I unplug my phone and I turn off my email. Wow. And I work uninterrupted. That right? is so then, important. On, yeah, and then I'll get on and then I'll plug my phone back in, listen to my messages and call people back. But I block out my time into two hour segments and in my two hour segment, no email, no text, no nothing pinging, no phone ringing, nothing. I'm, I'm, I'm completely into what I'm, what I'm doing. I love it. Time blocking is so important. To me, it's a little bit hard because I have a lot of information on my phone. So even if I do that, then I'm like, wait, I need this. And then it's on my phone. So I guess I need to <laughs> find a way to not have it on my phone so that I don't have to go to it. Because I, I have found myself, you know, I just going to go get a phone number and then I pick up the phone and all of a sudden half an hour later, I'm like on Facebook and I'm like, why am I doing here? Like, why? why am I? <laughs> and I wasted half an hour. So I totally get it. Yeah. yeah, no, and you're and, and you're just like like everybody else. We're all we're, we're all the same. We're very easily distracted. So so, <laughs> so it does it does it takes a little bit of, takes a little bit of discipline. It takes a little bit of time. But but and and on the days when I don't do it, I get far less done. Right. Absolutely. So. Expert tips. All right, so it's time now for the three expert tips. And Ted is going to share with us three expert tips on bookkeeping for investors. So what are your three tips? Okay. So my the first tip would be um, not to commingle funds, okay? So I see investors, and look, it's it's a tip, very typical, especially new investors. They're pulling money from everywhere. Right. So they're maybe they're they're trying to buy a rental property and they're, you know, they're they're drawing from their credit cards. They're they're, you know, drawing from the, uh, their bank account, their business bank account, their mother's bank account, you know, and uh, and by the time they're done, what they have is a mess. Right. Right. Because they didn't take every all the funding sources and put into one account and then identify by each of those things by source. And if every, and that's the second tip, which is everything should run through one account 
per property. Okay. And the reason I say that is, the reason I say that is, is if everything on my one property runs through one bank account, all the rents get collected, get to get deposited into that account. Uh, all the bills get paid out of that account. If I go to Home Depot to buy uh, something for the property, I'm using the debit card for that account. Why? So it shows up on my bank statement, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and then the worst case scenario is if I don't do any bookkeeping for the entire year, I still have all my activity on my bank statements and I can turn them over to a bookkeeper and let them do it. In one place, right? all in one place, right? And and I cannot all tell you place. how much that helped me because at the beginning I was doing it, you know, everything together. So I would just like get a credit card and it had like 12 months, 0%. And I would just move everything to that credit card for 12 months and then like move it. And then one year I didn't do the taxes like monthly and I just did it everything at the end of the year and trying to figure out where the expenses came from and where it belonged. That was the first year that I didn't do my taxes on time because I've always been a person that did, I did my taxes by, by March, I was done. And it was so stressful to do that. So for that year, I decided, okay, I need to separate everything. And so, like you said, I have one checking account and one credit card for each property uh, or each company. Um, and it's so much easier to handle now. It's so much easier. Like you said, you have like one statement, you could have the, the bank statement and the credit card statement and you're done. Everything run through there. So amazing tip. Uh, so last tip. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I was gonna, and I was gonna just, just to tack onto that one, it, you're probably leaving money on the table when you do it the other way, right? Because if you're unorganized, you're probably forgetting about things and you can't mm -hmm. forget about it if it's going through one account. And then the last thing would be, you know, just keep a great filing system. You know, that's part of bookkeeping, right? So, you know, the old, you know, I'm, I'm old school, you know, so I've got the, the box with the little green hanging folders and each hanging folder has a little tag on it. And this is the, here's where my leases are and here's my insurance or whatever. You can do the exact same thing online with a scanner and, and whatever. What, and I, I always tell people, I don't care how you do things, just you know, the more organized you can be, the better off you're gonna be. And the same thing for an accounting system. Um, I don't care what accounting system you use. I don't care if you use QuickBooks or one of the specialized you know, real estate uh, you know, Atfolio, Buildium, Stessa, whatever fits you, or you literally just, you know, put it on a spreadsheet or put it on a piece of paper, just make sure you're getting everything. And, and, and because you want to have a system that one, you're comfortable with, and two, um, manages to capture all of the activity of the problem. Absolutely. Totally, totally agree. Um, you know, be, being able to find the stuff, right? Like, because if you have it all organized with your filing system, then you're going to be able to find it and it's going to be so much easier uh, than just trying to locate it at the end of the year, all from one box that you <laughs> are looking through. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, people, people always say, you know, I don't have time to keep good records, right? Well, how much time do you spend looking for stuff when you don't have good records, right? Yes, yes. You know, I, I implemented this year um, Dropbox and you can do other ones. I just chose Dropbox because it's really easy mm -hmm. to access files. Um, and I just created uh, the same structure for every property. And now it's so easy to find the stuff because I know that it's going to be on this file 
on just this folder and it has made everything really really easy and i'm i'm going through the process of digitizing all my receipts so i don't have the paper ones anymore but i have one last question before we go um how long should we keep receipts and statements uh, you know i i my file cabinets are full and i'm thinking i mean i don't think i need to have this for seven years like when can i start burning these things so you want to keep tax returns, the actual tax returns for seven years. Seven you years. You want to keep the records, the, the, the detailed stuff, for three years, right? So the easiest way to do that is, you know, just when when it's all said and done, let's say you use my box method, right? Well, it's all said and done after three years, you chuck the box, right? And you, you know, shred it or whatever. If it's a digital filing system, you hit delete. Right, because you don't need it anymore. Right, but keep the seven years worth of tax returns. So three years of records, seven years of tax. So three. When you say the records, you mean like the statements and the bank statements and all of that, that right? Statement, three years of that. But all of the, if you're keeping invoices on things, all the detailed stuff. Yeah. All right. Awesome. So uh, all my tax, all my receipts uh, from three years ago are going away uh, next week. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for being here today and sharing so much information with my audience. If you are uh, learning something today, please make sure to uh, like and share this video and give us a good review. And for everybody that is listening and watching YouTube, uh, Ted, where can they find you? And also, where can they get your books? Because I know you have more than one. Yeah, I mean, right now, the one that's for sale is actually, you can, you can buy the uh, the physical version on Amazon, I think it's fourteen hundred dollars or something it's insane. Um, but um, the you can also download it digitally on my website for free at www.lanzarocpa.com. Um, the uh, that's the primary one. That's the most updated version is on the website and on Amazon if you want the physical version. Um, I can be reached um, via email at ted at Lanzaro cpa.com that's l-a-n-z-a-r-o-c-p-a.com and my office number is 203-922-1742 but remember if i'm working during those two hour blocks i'm probably not answering but i will call you back right so leave I'll a message <laughs> leave a message yeah because i'll call you back awesome Ted. thank you so much it was a pleasure to have you thank you thank you for having me it was a real lot this was Real Estate Deal Closers with Annette Tali, brought to you by Tali Investments. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Our goal is to provide amazing value on your real estate journey. Connect online at www.taleeinvestments.com where you can find this episode and more. Did you like this episode? Subscribe, like, and share.